My name is Baron. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. It is fantastic to be here today. I've never been to the Altoona Roundup. I've heard it, heard of it, and uh, you know what can I say? I think uh, honestly, uh, post-pandemic or semi-post-pandemic, uh, getting involved in the Atlanta Roundup and doing this and seeing all you shiny faces here this afternoon at three o'clock when it's gorgeous outside. It dawns on me that perhaps Alcoholics Anonymous is actually the driving force of family recovery. Because y'all are putting on events like this and you're inviting Al-Anon in. Now, Al-Anon is putting on events and inviting AAN. That is happening. But you don't see a lot of uh, people in Al-Anon there, I know there are members of Al-Anon here, and chances are you're connected to someone in AA that's here. And this is this is the deal. This is what I consider the deal to be, is to show up as a family, because that's what they were doing in the beginning. When they write about the first 100, they were talking about the wise. I'm grateful for Bill, Dr. Bob, and Lois and Ann Smith. Ann Smith started a family group in her house in 1936. Okay. I preached a little. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of things. Uh, I have to say this, but the difference between AA and Al-Anon, an Al-Anon knows what time it is. <laughs> right? Now, I will admit to struggling with that in other time zones, but uh, your entrance was so fantastic, and your workshop was fantastic. I have committed it to memory, and we'll be telling your story this week to sponsees and other people. I'll be calling those 37 people. <laughs> the other thing I want to say is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful fellowship. Anybody, anybody can become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And Al-Anon, you got to know somebody. <laughs> Okay, my life as a stand-up comic is now over. I do have a sponsor. His name is Palmer Gray. He's from Miami, Florida. And he, he started this journey of what you could call emotional sobriety or an attempt at emotional sobriety which is like 1990. And his sponsor is a lady who, whose first Al-Anon meeting was actually an AA meeting in Lubbock, Texas in 1969. She'd been picking up alcoholics at a late-night bar in Lubbock, Texas called the bloody bucket. <laughs> anyway, come see me afterwards and we'll get her story for you. It's, it's awesome. You will be humming uh, the, uh, the notes to a, uh, a song from the 1950s called Sleepwalk. <laughs> anyway, people have heard it know what I'm talking about. I have a new home group. It's called Saturday Morning Men's Wake Up Call. It meets at 8.30 in the morning at St. Bar Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in, uh, it's really North Decatur, right, Richard? You would call it North Decatur? Yeah. And uh, a group of us started that meeting because we were frustrated. And the frustration was, you know, we spent two years doing Zoom. Zoom didn't really work for me because I spent all day working on saving the organization that I run doing Zoom meetings all day long. So to come home and to get on a computer screen was hard. But stayed in contact. Uh, luckily, Alcoholics Anonymous started meeting, and there were fellowship. Uh, the Atlanta Roundup has quarterly fellowship uh, speaker meetings, so my wife and I started going to those. 
And um, a lady from L.A. named Tia stood up and told her story at one, and she said this. She said, in between those steps is a lot of footwork. A lot of footwork. And that means getting in your car and driving somewhere you don't want to go and spending time with people you don't want to spend time with. I thought, you know, this deal cannot really be done over a computer screen. Now, if you're a lone member somewhere out there, it's great. And I know new Zoom meetings that have formed all over the country that have connected people in a way that is fantastic. But in the process of going to a live meeting where they're doing hybrid, hauling in screens, showing everybody all over the North Georgia on screen and 12 of us sitting around a table. And for a while, we're walking up to a microphone to talk so the guys out in Zoom land could hear, and it just got a little bit nuts. So we willingly participated in group consciences. We discussed, then we argued. And so several of us said, tell you what, let's just start a meeting before this meeting. Let's stay part of this group, but let's do the 12 steps. So we are every every Saturday morning. We're on a step today. I'm missing. They're on step two. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. So there's about 12 of us. We haven't even started advertising it. But I'll tell you, it's a great example how God works. We were frustrated over this trying to do a hybrid thing because it diminished the live experience and it diminished the on-screen experience. But the, the overall group conscience wants to keep the band together. Right? So... Uh, anyway, so we've started this meeting. Get up early on Saturday morning. Crack up and uh, reading on step one uh, on the first. And we've been through all 12. And we're starting over, and that's what we're going to do. And i got to tell you, getting back to the fundamentals has just been fantastic. It's just, I, last week we were on step one. A friend of mine in the meeting started talking about how his relationship with his alcoholic girlfriend 25 years ago, devolved into him holding a gun. And somebody said in their sharing, I never thought that spending all night looking for my alcoholic wife with a gun was a problem until you just said that. So that's the kind of thing we're doing. Right? What, what Jeanette described is, Transformation. <laughs> but that's what we do in here. That's what we do with these 12 steps. We transform. The, uh, let me read the fifth tradition of Al-Anon to you so you understand exactly where I'm coming from. And I promise not to preach and editorialize too much. It says in Tradition 5, Each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help the families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. Now, in my life, I've had a committed AA group. It was, as they tell you to do that in Al-Anon literature, early Al-Anon literature says, go to Alcoholics Anonymous, read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's the only way you're going to really understand the alcoholic is to participate in that. So for about five years, I towed myself off to a big book study every Thursday night in uh, Dunwoody called uh, We're Not a Glum Lot. And it was Joe and Charlie Big Book meeting. And it had members of AA and members of Al-Anon and members of other 12-step fellowships. And it started with about 20 people and ended up with 200. So I take this passage, practice the 12 steps of AA ourselves, very seriously. So 
you know, in this circle, I'm happy to say I, I, I could describe myself as a big book Al-Anon. There are, you know, there. If I went to an Al-Anon meeting and it was an Al-Anon, you know, speaker meeting, I would say I practice 12 steps of AA myself, just like the fifth tradition says. But here I can tell you that um, my recovery really took off when I did a fourth and fifth step out of the traditional way. Let's call it that. So anyway, I am the son of a deceased, uh, retired colonel in the United States Air Force who was a cold warrior. He was a bomber pilot. He took off in B-52s and headed to the North Pole with loaded nuclear weapons and got just over the North Pole to where the Soviet Union could see him, turn around and come back to the Air Force Base. So he was a cold warrior. And I'm grateful that he, that he did that. So I was a military kid. They ought to have a 12-step program for that. If you've ever heard, you know, one time I heard there's a, there's a lady in it. Uh, she's primarily known as a member of AA, but she, she does Alan on team named Polly P. And she was a colonel's wife. And I believe she got sober when she was married to, to her husband. And I believe he was a, a, an officer in, in the Army or the Air Force. But I sat and listened to her story, and I just really, really, really wanted that. I didn't have that in my household. What we had in my household was a tremendous amount of uh, emotional outbursts and lots of alcohol. Uh, my parents don't describe themselves as alcoholics because that's a self-diagnosing disease. They never entered the rooms, you know. There was a hell of a lot of drinking. Dang it. I had people tell me if you cuss in your story, it diminishes your story. Dang it. What are we going to do? Can we back up over that? And, and Can we edit that out? I didn't say anything. All right. Huh, well, we'll let go of that. We're just going to let that go. We tried. Maybe it can't be done. Um... So, well, start at the beginning, my father, uh, who I should say now, we were not very much alike. He was born in the 1930s, depressionary child, first, first to graduate college in his family, joined the United States Air Force to escape the uh, draft for the Korean War, didn't want to be an infantryman in Korea, so joined the United States Air Force and stayed, and he retired in 1979. But he and I were not a whole lot alike, you know. I witnessed the 60s as an eight and nine year old. And then I participated in the 70s. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about, you know. I just didn't have an allergy to alcohol. I tried very hard to be one of y'all. And as y'all tried hard, it just didn't take. But I'll tell you what, where y'all were out there running wild, I was driving the car, you know. And I got tired of that. That isn't fun. Anyway, so I married my father. Turns out I'm a love child. My grandmother showed me one time, reading, looking at the wedding book, looking at their wedding book, going through, see the uh, the marriage certificate. Marriage certificate says July something or other, uh, 1958. I'm born January 19, 1959. So look at the marriage certificate. Keep looking through the book. Grandmother goes, go back to the marriage certificate. And I look at it, she goes, they told me you were a seven-pound premature baby. 
Man. So anyway, so there he goes. You know, here I am. You know, I don't I don't look sixty three, right? <laughs> anyway, so Dad gets married, does the right thing, marries my mother. Uh, about three or four years later, my mother was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. This was 1963 or four. And what they did to people then, they don't do now. She was gone a lot to military hospitals. Uh, I remember, uh, all I really remember of her was what you might call withdrawn behavior, maybe catatonic, withdrawn or extremely rage-filled. I do remember this, and I'm not proud of it, but as a five-year-old, I remember standing in the driveway of our house in Little Rock, Arkansas, holding a broom like a spirit toner. I wanted to kill her. Now, that's not normal for a five-year-old. So I don't know what the circumstances were. Um, she was mentally ill, not really capable of taking care of us. And uh, so she shipped off to military hospitals. Uh, my father's getting a series of housekeepers. The United States Air Force makes him sign a piece of paper that says the Air Force comes first, and he signed it. I do not hold that against him. I am not resentful about that. That's the choice he made. And I can tell you, I'm grateful for him. But we were not very much alike. So, um, 1968, my, my dad ships my brother and I and sister off to live with my grandmother in North Carolina, the lady that later showed me the wedding book, you know. She was, you know, she was a, she was a sweetheart with a lot of discipline. It's exactly what I needed when I got it. Because we were, my dad described us as kind of wild, banshee Indian kids because left home with a mother who couldn't take care of us and kind of ran wild. So long about that time, my father meets my stepmother. They come pick us up in North Carolina. I have no introduction. Uh, they pick us up and drive us back to Michigan, and the partying and the drinking and emotional outbursts start rampant, so I learn to survive. My survival instinct is to withdraw and try to hide, but it was really hard. And, uh, you know, we make it through. We just gutted our way through. I learned to gut my way through my whole life. So uh, I enter adulthood kind of unhappy, you know, kind of withdrawn. I enter adulthood like, I mean, I got skills. I, I, you know, I had big shot itis too. I mean, here's the difference. Here's the difference. He said, well, it had to be like 1962 you wanted to Levi's, right? Something like that. And I get it. You go look back at old Levi's ads and you see the 501s with the rolled up and the Converse sneakers and the white Shirt with stripes going this way. I don't want to be that guy too. Well, in 1979, it was a disco era. Right? Now, how many of you ladies have a memory of seeing those first Calvin Klein underwear ads for men? Okay, alright. Well, we all remember the Calvin Klein Brooks Shields as, but they made Calvin Klein jeans for men, and that's what I wanted. All right? Because it was the disco era, and uh, they also told us in the 1980s, along with wearing Calvin Klein jeans, is have your feelings. 
men have your feelings. What they didn't say is, don't spew them out all over the place. Because <laughs> that's what we do, right? The only difference between y'all and me is I feel bad. I don't feel uh, welcome or comfortable in situations with other human beings. The difference is when y'all take a drink, you metabolize it differently and you want to keep going. We just quit after two or three and find something else to obsess about. But we have obsession of the mind. Al-Anons have obsession. Let me tell you we have obsession, okay? We will obsess about anything other than ourselves. We'll obsess about how you affect us, right? So, you know, I graduated from college. I think I'm good, you know? I moved to Columbia, South Carolina. I hated it, but it didn't matter where I, where I would have moved to. I would have hated it anywhere. And I just begin to isolate, and I just isolate. And that's the commonality, too, is we, we are isolators. Our disease will take us to isolation. I know three people who committed suicide that were attending Al-Anon meetings in the last 20 years. And I don't know if they ever truly cracked a book or what. Some of them just showed up. Some of them shared in an Al-Anon meeting. I don't know what they did outside the meeting. I don't know what their program was like. All I know is they thought that the only way out, alcoholism, cunning, and baffling, I just don't have an allergy. So anyway, I'm 25 and 26, moving around the southeast. I work for a major healthcare company. You know, I'm driving around South Carolina listening to Bob Marley on the radio and then straighten my tie going talking to little old ladies in small hospitals trying to sell healthcare products, right? And then I get to move to Atlanta. I got to move to Atlanta, right? <laughs> and I did have an apartment, but I had a fifth of vodka in the fridge that stayed frozen in the fridge. What's wrong with me? All right? But I was really unhappy. I didn't do things that you would normally do. Normally, you would go get involved in civic activities. Or maybe I had some older gentlemen say the best place to meet young ladies is church. But I wasn't going to step foot in a church. I didn't believe in all that stuff. I was angry at God. I had grown up in a divorced family. Anybody by any measure would call an emotionally challenged family. If you ever read the book, uh, The Right Stuff by Thomas, no, Wolf was, Tom Wolf, Tom Wolf, yeah. Two activities in the United States Air Force. Two, flying and drinking, drinking and flying. And that's what they did. You know, that's what they did. And, you know, occasionally they told us we loved us, I think. But, you know, my, my father was a wing commander. That means he was over a B-52 squadron, and he was over a KC-135 squadron. That's a tanker squadron. And while he was wing commander, two planes went down and crashed on his watch, killed something like 18 crew members between those two crashes in one year. So, I mean, what kind of pressure is a Colonel of the United States Air Force over an Air Force installation that has 14,000 people working at it, et cetera, in a, in, a, in, a, in a highly disciplined environment, which the environment must be highly disciplined. But it didn't work for this beatnik neo-hippie. You know? I was, uh, you know, college of social democrat. 
wasn't everybody. <laughs> At that time we were, anyway. Um, so you know what happened? You know what I did? Unhappy, isolated, etc. Who can guess? I got married. <laughs> so uh, I'm attending a, uh, a formal event for my company. I go to Perimeter Mall to pick up a tuxedo because I'm a big shot, right? And here's this young lady who's a disc jockey at 94Q. Anybody remember 94Q? Yeah, right? And she had kind of spiky hair and a leather jacket, and she had on a white dress and, you know, leather stiletto heels. And I took one look at her, and, and she took one look at me, and I just kept right on going, went and got the tuxedo, came around, acted kind of like, you know, circled like a shark. She gave me another kind of... Not quite do you believe in love at first sight, or should I keep walking kind of moment. But so I go up and talk to her and get her phone number. She gives me a publicity shot and you know, she's a disc jockey. And I'm thinking, Oh you know, it's just like that first drink, right? It goes down, I have arrived, I have attracted this young lady who is somebody. I have this God sized hole inside of me and I seek things outside of me to fill it. So I filled it with her. Turns out she had six months in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and they were telling her not to get in a relationship. I was saying, why not? <laughs> I won. <laughs> All right. And soon she quit. She quit attending AA. What did you say, ma'am? <laughs> I didn't have a sponsor then. I didn't have a program then. I didn't believe in God. I had no God. I had no... You know, I, she just quit. She just quit. She just started going to therapy. She started seeing a pastoral counselor. Who said that? You said that. Pastoral counselor. He would say, I'm an Episcopal priest. I don't know how to tell you how to stop drinking. You know, but she was, she was, you know. So soon after we met, she loses her job, right? We had moved in together within, I don't know. It actually took three or four months. Doesn't that surprise you? You know what I mean? And so she, she quit her job. She was going to start looking for a job in Memphis or around the southeast, I went and took out a signature loan and gave her the money. I mean, isn't that what you do? Sure. One year later, I'm on the phone to the bank screaming at him for taking the payment without asking me because I'd missed a couple. How can they do that? I'm literally, you know, the audacity of them. So that's the point is, we, we, we got married a few months later we were always seeking something outside of us to fix us on the inside, and we did not achieve that. We were not seriously attracted to each other. I was the first guy that didn't abuse her. I didn't know that. I knew it, within two weeks, I knew her full mental health history in her family, and she knew mine. Now, I tell guys that I sponsor today, don't share everything. Just put your toe in the water. Tell them a little bit about yourself. No need to go through your whole family history because there's no need for all... It, all that stuff is in the past. Who are you today? 
But no, we went down complete, you know, if we could have pulled medical histories, we would have. And I can tell you, there's just no, you can't bond negatively. You can't bond over pain. You can't bond over the disease of alcoholism. But today, my second wife, we're bonded over the solution and that the 12 steps and the traditions bring. That you can do. And that I'm very grateful for. Seems like I've been up here forever. <laughs> anyway, uh, the bottom that I hit was 12 years later. We were divorcing. We had moved. This was a really brilliant idea. I'm sure that some of you... By the way, I'm really grateful for the men in Alcoholics Anonymous because I met some of you that work a very serious program. I've been to The Rock. I heard somebody talking about The Rock. I heard a guy say at The Rock, it's a men's retreat for A and Al Anonymous, predominantly. Uh, man, I heard a guy say, I pursue my recovery like I pursued alcohol. And when I heard that, I went, you know, there's just no half this deal. <laughs> Caught myself. Boom. There's no half doing it. There's no half doing it. You, if you really want a, an abundant, lovely life, and still you will still be a mess. I still, on many days, have some messy thoughts and some messy actions. They are just not nearly like they used to be. I don't just blurt my feelings out anymore. <laughs> That's progress. So, uh, the bottom that I had was I tried to control... Oh, the idea I had was let's... We're divorcing. Let's sell our house. Let's live in the same apartment complex so our kids can go back and forth. That was a horrible idea. I didn't have anybody to tell me that it was a horrible idea, but it was a horrible idea. My bottom was... My soon-to-be ex-wife started dating her next-door neighbor. I tried to get her to stop... Blaming it on it's bad for the kids. Which is probably true. But really it was that God-sized hole that I was trying to fill up. Now that was gone and I wanted it back. And so I called her over to my apartment on one end of the apartment complex. And sat her down and said, you got to quit dating this guy. I mean, I had called him while they were at Disney and they were down there with Walt Disney with this fellow, you know. Two kids, a at that time, they were my daughter was 11, my son was 6. And so, my soon-to-be ex-wife, uh, she, she, as far as I know, she hadn't had a drink since 1985. So, I, she managed to not drink and use drugs. Uh, she said, no, I'm not doing that. So, I said, well, I'll go get him to do it. And I jumped out of my chair and threatened to go do bodily harm and ran down up to their apartment started banging on the door. She called the cops. Cops came. What I recollect is the cops, by the time they got there, I'd calmed down. The cops asked my 11-year-old daughter a couple of questions. And the way she answered kept them from putting me in the car and taking me to the police station. But I absolutely threatened bodily harm. I absolutely did that. Now, um, I know members of Allen Island who have gone to jail. So... Two days later, after going into the depths of what felt like depression, my wife's cousin, who I still, can, my first wife's cousin, who I consider, who's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, called me and said there's a great Al-Anon meeting 
at NABA, as you all know, that clubhouse in North Atlanta, on Thursday night at 8 o'clock. And I go, you know what? I'm going. So I thought, you know, it would be a great idea to be around spiritual people. And those steps on the wall sound great. They look great. They read them at every meeting. Did you know that? They read them steps every meeting. And they read this other stuff. And they read a closing. And they, they end with a prayer. What a great one hour way to spend time. And I did nothing for two years. And I went and asked a, a double winner, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she was a member of Al-Anon. And she said, you got a sponsor? I said, I'm not getting better. She goes, you got a sponsor? I said, no. You work in the steps? I said, no. She goes, we're going to go get you one. So we went to the meeting that night, got a sponsor, started working the steps, did Tuesday night with him, Tuesday night, NABA, Wednesday night, I played music for fun in a little, you know, beer and uh, ribs joint, Thursday night, Friday night at Oglethorpe, started going to five meetings a week, did what that sponsor asked me to do. Uh, he then got involved with a friend of mine in the program. That went kind of sideways. He started asking me for relationship advice. I'm thinking, why are you asking me? <laughs> so I decided maybe get another sponsor. So I got another sponsor. We, he said, uh, at that time I worked a program. There's a book called Paths to Recovery. You read and you answer questions. He said, did you keep the answers to those questions? I said, no. He goes, we'll go through them again. I said, okay, no problem. So we do it again. And uh, he gets involved with another member of Al-Anon who's kind of a friend of mine. They get married. A year later, they're divorced. I'm thinking, might be time to move on again because I want, I want to be married again. I want to be in a healthy relationship. So I called a, 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 a person who, his primary program is Alcoholics Anonymous, but he's participated in Al-Anon and his wife is a longstanding member of Al-Anon. I said, I know this is unorthodox, but will you sponsor me? He goes, you have a great reputation around the program. Yes, I will do that. So we started, I would call him two or three times a week, and he would say, your head is full of stuff. Go to the wastebasket and empty it. And I would physically go do that. <laughs> and then finally he said, you have been calling me with the same stuff. We need to do an inventory. Go download from the Rock Eagle, the the uh, fourth and fifth step guide that's up on that website and fill out those columns exactly the way it says to do it and meet me at my house on Saturday whatever. I don't remember the day exactly. Sometime in 2005. So I had on that uh, fourth step under the resentments I had my mother, my stepmother, my stepsisters, my grandmother, and those five resentments took three hours, and I half filled up a, 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 a waste can of uh, tissue from tears. I had just been carrying this. I was resentful at my mother. I was resentful for my stepmother. I resented my grandmother in a way, and I also had much gratitude towards her. Uh, my stepsisters ran the house when my stepmother was, was gone, so I hated them. <laughs> Not really. But nevertheless, uh, I, I had just so withdrawn. Um, but out here, I didn't look withdrawn. Inside here, I'm withdrawn. I'm withdrawn and really don't know how to relate. But I can fake it. I can fake it really good. Military kids back at that time moved every year. New friends every year. New school every year. So I learned to fake it well. So 
I had that sponsor until last year. And, um, you know, and my understanding of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's basically one way to work the 12 steps. And Al-Anon, they keep adding and adding and adding. And it's, all of it's good. But I just happened to have had a spiritual awakening as a result of doing it the original way, which is what they did in Al-Anon when they started, and many, many of us do now. Uh, so I called this uh, fellow I had met named Palmer, and I, I said, Palmer, I said, how do, how do you work the steps in Al-Anon? And, and, but by the way, I only have 10 minutes. <laughs> and he goes, well, you do step one like this. And I said, got to go, call you tomorrow. And that night I went, wait a minute, you're going to call him? You admire him? He's been a member of Al-Anon since 1990. So I called him up the next day and said, Palmer, I think I want to work the steps. I think I want to make you my sponsor. And uh, he said, okay, let's do that. So we launched, and last year I worked all 12 steps again. And it was a phenomenal, wonderful process. So, all right, made it through the inventory with the previous sponsor, worked all 12 steps, had 10 years between marriages, met my current wife doing service work in Al-Anon. My sponsor said, all right, if you think you have a good idea, you don't. Call me first. <laughs> and let her do the talking. And I just remember, and look, I'm, I'm one of those rebellious types that would love to roll a hand grenade. Just take that, you know, and just start some stuff because I'm restless, irritable, and discontent without divine intervention. And by God, I kept my mouth shut and... We worked it out and started talking about getting married, and we had a wonderful ceremony. We had a member of, a uh, longtime member of Al Anon who, uh, married us, and, um, my kids were there, and we had about 35 people, and we had a little chapel set up in a hotel, and, a, and then next door dinner, and, uh, the member of Al Anon had, you know, done what many of us do. You can go register to be a minister, and you're allowed to marry people, but she had on this really nice, Episcopal church looking robe and you know we we, we, we we pulled some stuff and had a had vows to tell and had a friend of mine read read basically the Henry Drummond the you know first Corinthians uh, the love chapter and she leaned over at both of us and she said I'm not gonna say it Richard but I'm a, they'll know what I'm talking about she leaned over at the end of the ceremony and said don't <clears throat> this up <laughs> Boom! People are going to be so proud. I got people going. Your story is great, but you cuss like a sailor. Why do you do that? So, boom! I said that thirteenth commandment: Thou shalt not cuss. All right. So, anyway, Stacy and I are married, and, and and let me just say, we've been married for this will be I don't know fourteen years. Yeah, November twenty nine. We have, dealt, we have a wonderful life together. Here's something they don't tell you when you're a newcomer. You're going to come in here, and if you do this deal about five years, you're going to know a lot, and you're going to know more people, and you're going to feel really good about yourself, and then you're going to go out and create a whole other level of life. They don't tell you how hard that's going to be and how you will need the program. You're going to need this program. I'll tell you what. Go to Alan on me and say, is anybody here for the first time? And it's all I can do not to raise my hand. And also say, this could be my last time. 
because it's not easy. You know, there's a line, there's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I read for years and missed. And it says, we learn to meet calamity with serenity. That's what happens. Uh, two stories, and I'll, then I'll close. And, and the first one's kind of long. Uh, I was invited to tell my story at Kentucky Man to Man. It's a wonderful men's AA conference uh, near Louisville in a Catholic monastery. 400 acres, first week of December. Wonderful. And uh, there's about 100 members of AA and about 20 men from Al-Anon that go. They come from Indiana and around. And uh, they have the Friday night 8 o'clock speakers, Al-Anon speakers. So told my story and um, that I had gotten a phone call that night uh, and I didn't listen to the message till the next morning. And the next morning I heard a message that said, Baron, I don't know what your relationship with Barney Kilpatrick is, but he committed suicide last night. Now this was a friend of mine. He wasn't just a friend of mine. Twelve years ago or so, his son was out there bad. Nineteen years old, drugs and alcohol, living on the street. They knew I was a member of Al-Anon. If you get to know me and want to know the source of my happy joyousness and freeness, I will tell you that it is from the 12 steps of AA has worked in the fellowship of Al-Anon. And I believe God is love. So they knew that. So they would call. I would say, do not let him in the house. Do not make it comfortable for him. Don't do that. And they did it. They did that. They successfully did that. Now, I worked with Barney, the dad. And he, he, uh, he had what you would, he was the nicest guy on the planet, but he had some serious self-will. In other words, and he had very low I know now he had very low self-image. So what he did in his music business career was believe there was only one way he could operate and he continuously isolated himself and isolated himself and isolated himself. And we used to work together on some projects and then I split from a company and he ended up keeping his business with them. But we still were friends. Now, Five or six years ago, I'm at lunch with him in New Orleans, and his wife says, what you told us changed our life. I watched their son, who was out there bad, take the long walk in a church at a speaker meeting, pick up a white chip. He's now, this kid who was out on the street is now a college graduate. He's hired by Microsoft. He's a trainer at Microsoft. He's 33 years old and married, and he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I invite Barney to one Al-Anon meeting. That's all I do. I invite him to one meeting. He picks me up and we take him to Al-Anon and he sat at our Saturday morning meeting with his head down. And later, he didn't tell this to me. He just said, I won't be back. But he told others that he thought this, all of this is a bunch of BS. So, I wake up on Saturday morning at, I've just told my story and I'm leading a workshop and I listen that he's committed suicide. So I immediately pull out uh, prayer. we call it the prayer of St. Francis Lindsay prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. You know? 
And I, there's a there's a great great uh, musical recording of Sarah McLaughlin singing it. So I play it over and over and over. I use that some in my meditation because music is such a powerful healing instrument of God. I do it over and over and over. And I'm supposed to lead a workshop at one o'clock, and I call my sponsor, say, "Palmer, this happened." He goes, "Baron, you're in shock. Best thing you can do is go lead the workshop. Go lead the workshop. Nobody at that retreat knows that that happened." I had called my sponsor. I had called my wife. I had prayed for God to remove the feelings I had. I prayed for his family. I prayed the 11-step prayer uh, over and over and over. And then I went and did a workshop. They, these guys were funny. I told them I could do, what do you want me to do in a workshop? And I said, I could do this Al-Anon thing. I could do this. I could do this. He goes, oh, no, no, no. We need Al-Anon. He's <laughs> a member of AA. So I read the gifts of the program that... Somebody read. You did. Yeah, I read those. And uh, it's funny, the, the, the members of Al-Anon that were there, when I said awe and wonder, they went, awe. They do that in their meeting. I'm like, I never heard of that. So I just want to lay out that that's what the program does. I have an abundant life. I own a home. I'm almost debt free. I have kids in the program. I, my family, my ex-wife and I, 12-stepped my son, she found him with enough drugs to know he was dealing. And we gave him a choice, the, 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 the uh, legal system or Ridgeview. And that's what we said. Sat in the living room said, you have a choice. Ridgeview or the legal system. And then I just sat there so uncomfortable thinking, please don't choose the legal system. Please choose Ridgeview. And he chose Ridgeview. I've seen him pick up a chip. There is nothing better than to see your adult child pick up a white chip at an AA meeting. It does not get better than that. And let me say this. I willingly married an alcoholic. I didn't willingly birth one. And that is a whole different relationship. I did not willingly say, oh, we're going to have an alcoholic. This one's going to be alcoholic. <laughs> this one. So anyway, so I'm so grateful for that reading. And I read that reading in the big book. I read it over and over and over, and I never saw it till about two years ago. It says, we will meet calamity with serenity. That's the program. There's going to be calamities. So that's what we're here to learn how to do, how to maintain. It says in Al-Anon, maintain serenity whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. It's not about y'all. It's about me. I needed a program before I ever picked up my first drunk. <laughs> Took a minute, didn't it? Took a minute. Well, they talk, I will say this, they talk about qualifiers in Al-Anon. I came into adulthood with a disease, obsession of the mind. You know, when I heard, um, turned, we turned our will and our life over the care of God as we understood Him. When it, I heard Joe and Charlie say, the will is the thoughts. <coughs> And the life is the actions that you took from day one till today. So what I understand today is turning my life, my will, and my life over the care of God is what's going on up here is the will, and what I, what my footwork is, is my life. So I'm grateful to know that. They don't tell you that. You have to dive in and hear. You have to really go deep to understand that. Also understand this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. When I came to Al-Anon, I did not understand that. I knew I was powerless over what alcoholics do and think, but I didn't really understand it. 
until someone said, when they put alcohol in their body, you're powerless over that. Okay? That I got. And then, by coming to AA, I understand that the thought before the drink is the problem. The drink is not the problem, it's the thought. So I'm powerless over the way others think. And my reaction to that is what unmanageability is. The unmanageability is on me. It's not on you. The unmanageability is on me. Because I have, with the help of God, and these 12 steps and people like you, I have the power to make my life seemingly manageable. I could tell you that I've recovered from a hopeless state of mind because I have tools. All right, one more story and I'm done. So I told you about my dad, you know, United States Air Force. I really think I'm more of a beatnik than a hippie. All right, beat poets, Jack Kerouac, Greenwich Village, coffee shops, you know. Um, you know, we'd go to concerts in the 70s with a little bottle of uh, Jack Daniels in a cowboy boot and pull it out, you know. I did all that stuff. It just didn't, I just would rather obsess about something else. Just was not my solution, right? So, um, we would be at family events as an adult and my father would come up and start a verbal argument. <laughs> and I didn't set out to do this and of course, I have a fight in state, so I would start fighting back. At my brother's wedding in 2010, he threw the gauntlet down. My wife was standing right there, and she just got into... We, we'd never come to, like, violence. But we, he would just get up in my face and say something combative about something I believed. And I believed differently than him. I loved him. But we were just never that close. I was just way different than him. You know what I mean? Grew up in the 1930s on a farm in North Carolina. You know, he said, I didn't, I didn't get Elvis. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I inherited some Louis Armstrong records from him, though. And I'm grateful for that. So anyway, dad retires from the military. Because I've married an alcoholic with mental illness, I want to keep that a secret. So I keep her away from my family. And because I'm not real fond of my stepmother because she's still somewhat rage-filled and starts drinking about 10 in the morning and stops about 10 at night. I divorced my family for years until I meet my second wife and my stepsister starts saying, why don't you come visit us? And we put the family back together, so to speak, meaning we go out to Arizona a couple times a year. My dad pulls me in a study and tells me he's read the Bible through twice in the last couple years and it was very meaningful for him. And he says, and you know what, I have all your, remember your grandfather's commentaries? My uh, grandfather had commentaries on Paul's letters that sat by his easy chair. And my dad opens up to show me his God. And up there next to the commentaries is a fifth of vodka, a fifth of, uh, you know, clear liquid, right? Whatever that stuff is, right? Vodka, gin, whiskey, etc. So alcohol still meant a lot to him. And he would say, you know, I decided to quit hard drinking. You know what I mean? And I'd say, that's good, Dad. You know, I just let it go. I just let it go. So, 2018, he falls ill. It's not good. I don't remember exactly what the malady was that he had. Pancreatic cancer or something like that. And uh, March 
of 2018 would have been the 50th year, I think I'm doing the math right, that he met my stepmother. So he gathered all of us. We all went out to see him. We all stood up and, and gave gratitude and thanks. And stepsisters, and along the way I found out I had blood relatives I didn't know. They came, you know, never had met them, but they were blood relatives. You know, it was a, you know, there was a lot of love children, okay? <laughs> a lot of love going on, right? So he was actually had hospice at home. And he, uh, he, uh, he was laying in a hospital bed in, in the house, right? So we have this gratitude ceremony on Saturday afternoon. My brother and I go back Sunday to spend time with him. And I just had this intuitive thought. Spend some alone time with him. So I asked my brother, could I just go in there and be alone with him? Whew. This gets me every time. I said, Dad, my life got better when I got a God of my understanding. And it was so meaningful. I said, I want to say the Lord's Prayer with you. And we did that. And I said, I got to go. He said, I'm not going anywhere and waved at me. A couple days later, he passed. This program allowed me to end well. And I am so grateful. I mean, that's what it does. You know what? We start well. Things go awry. We can heal it. We can get back together. We can heal our families. I, I you know, I, I have relationships with alcoholics now. I represent musical artists for a living. There's no greater. There are two great uh, professions in a world that you can escape. One's be a musician. The other one's be a waiter. Yeah. Anyway, I want to read, close by reading from this. If you've never read this, I would urge all members of AA and I want to read it. It's still printed. It's called Lois Remembers. It's Lois's telling of their life together and the writing of the big book. And there was an argument about God. She kicked everybody out of the house and said, if you don't make this book about God, it will not flourish. It's written right here. There's also, I guess, if I could show you this picture, there's a picture of her pushing a dodge. Uh, they, they got stuck on the beach in Florida. And it shows Lois pushing the car out. Now, what kind of Al-Anon is that? What kind of alcoholic? What kind of alcoholic lets his white pussy dang car? He's probably asleep in the car. You're? Yeah. You got any sense? Anyway. The last page and a half is all about love and service. It says, But the survival of our A's depend on growth, growth in spirit more than in numbers. We believe the principles upon which AA and Al-Anon are founded are fundamental for all times and all people. And yet our individual acceptance and application of these principles must continue to grow or we as societies will perish. For stagnation is regression. There is no standing still. AA and Al-Anon are great demonstrations of the love of one human being for another, of people for people. The joy and empathy felt at one of our gatherings 
are beyond description. Nowhere else have, do I see folks enjoy being together in no church or other assembly. Have I ever heard a prayer recited more movingly than our fellowship meetings? I deeply believe that it is love that makes the world go round. God is love, and love is a creative force, the force that ties family and friends. The well of love refills itself. This force, embodied as it is in God's love, kept Bill and me together, and finally, through various channels, sobered him up. There are moments now, even when the wonder and beauty of Bill's regeneration still fill me with awe. I used to believe thinking was the highest function of human beings. The AA experience changed me. I now realize loving is our supreme function. The heart precedes the mind. May God bless you and keep you. Thank you for having me.